0: Hi, everyone, and welcome to another Right Club podcast. I'm Laurel Simmons, a co-founder of the Right Club, and I'm joined today by Catherine nelson Riley, our wonderful operations manager. So, Catherine, we have Ken
1: Beck and them joining us today. What did you think of that interview? It was awesome. He was spot on with everything from taking us through doing our due diligence to mitigate risk on application. It was just you name it, he hit all kinds of different points and really opened my eyes to a lot of different things. And okay, you got to tell people
0: what's on his Instagram account. Like
1: that's really great. I love it. When you Google and it comes up for, can be condemned for Instagram. It says solo dad, real estate investor, contractor, alpaca farmer, developer, radio host, And his phrase is, dream big and take action.
0: And there you go. So we're going to tell you to take action and go listen to what Ken had to say, because he has so much great information about adapting existing housing, building new infill, all kinds of things. You can't miss this episode. So Catherine, let's go right now. Absolutely.
2: Welcome to the Right Club Podcast, where the focus is on helping you, the real estate investor, advance to the next level. And now let's join this week's hosts and share ways for you to customize your life.
0: Hi, Ken, and welcome to the Right Club Podcast. It's great to see you here again and talk to you again. You are a really busy man.
2: Yeah, it's great to be on here again with you guys. You know, thanks for inviting me and having me here. Things are changing all the time and The space of conversion work, you know, adding increasing density. Obviously, we're in a housing crisis and, you know, everybody needs to be pushing and trying to create more housing units wherever we can, right? Exactly.
0: Especially with the GTA, well, the GTA, the province of Ontario and municipalities encouraging densification. Like, for example, now in the GTA, was it you can go up to four units on a space?
2: Well, so... When Bill 23, you no, know, was approved, that allowed three units on, you no, know, a low density right. property, right? right. Uh, many municipalities were even already allowing more than that. Like Hamilton, for instance, was already allowing four units on the property. So we could have like three units in the principal building and have a detached, you know, garden suite or coach house for four. I see Toronto just came out with a, an amending bylaw where they're now allowing you know, up to five units on the lawn. So four units within the principal building plus that fifth unit in a detached structure. So, you know, the trend in municipalities is further relaxing their zoning permissions and allowing us to do more units. Which well, it is-
0: makes sense because we've got so many people who need housing and we've got a lot of lots and uh, all over certainly the province of Ontario, but all over the country where, places were built in the 50s and 60s and 70s and 80s and these huge lots that can easily accommodate more than one unit and larger residential dwellings that can be converted or the basement added and all the rest of it. So let's start by just going through what I think is a uh, might be a typical question from someone is someone comes up to you and says, I can, I've got a... Four bedroom house and an unfinished basement, and my lot is roughly, I don't know, a hundred by a hundred. Is there anything I can do? What do, where do I start? Because I don't know where to start.
2: Yeah, and that's an excellent question because that is a very common. It's one of the first questions we always get asked: is, you know, how many units, what can I do here with this house or this building, or with this property? So 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 the way that we work and the way that, you know, the best approach is really obviously to set up a consultation and we do, you know, we get free property assessments all the time. So, you know, multiple times a week, I meet with investors, you know, on phone, on Zoom, and we're looking at the property together online. Okay. A lot of the kind of the, the research or the due diligence into a property can be done right from your home, right from the computer. But, you know, we don't necessarily need to be going out to the site right away to determine, you know, other considerations. So, from a high-level perspective, obviously, it comes down to the zoning bylaw. And obviously, with the changes that have happened with the zoning bylaws over the last you know year or two, it's created so much opportunity everywhere to be adding units, right? So, the very first thing that we check is the zoning bylaw. Number one, you know, we check the city zoning maps, these interactive maps, these interactive GIS maps that many municipalities have. You know, some municipalities, are they have better mapping software than others, you know, Others are very slick where you can just type in the property address and boom, the property parcel comes up on the map. You can click on and it tells you what that zoning designation is. Others are a little bit more old school and you have to kind of dig into the key plan and schedule maps and scroll down through a long PDF document and try and locate your property parcel. So that can sometimes be a little bit tougher to find, but we got to find that zoning code and that will tell us or lead us in the right direction for density, right? How many units can we fit here? And, you know, some you know, some municipalities, yes, it is only, you know, two units on the property and you have to be in a different zone to get that third or fourth unit. Others know they're allowing the three and four unit conversions in a typical R1, R2 kind of low density zoning. So zoning is number one, right? And then from there, it's really looking at, you know, other zoning bylaw considerations that may be required for that number of dwelling units, right? Parking is one of them. Sometimes there's minimum lot areas, lot area requirement per dwelling unit that we may require, right? So obviously checking into some of these other zoning bylaw requirements, because what we're trying to figure out up front is, you know, can we do everything as of right or do we need a minor variance application to address any of these zoning deficiencies, right? Because we can't fit the required number of parking spaces. Obviously, we're going to have to apply to committee of adjustment and ask for a relief of a reduction in parking. And that adds another level of risk to your development application, right? You know, if the minor variance were to get denied, you know, because, you know, when you do a variance application, the neighbors all get notices and, you know, you're always asking for trouble when you have to go to your neighbor to ask their opinion, you know, on your application. And obviously it could get denied, right? If it gets denied, we can't comply with the zoning bylaw. We can't get our building permit to make it legal second dwelling or third dwelling or fourth dwelling, right? So zoning zoning is key. We're trying to mitigate risk right from day one on our application. But let's say, you know, everything is, you know, we can do everything as of, right? We comply with the parking, we comply with lot area, you know, unit size, any and all requirements, then it really becomes a building code discussion at this point, right? Can our house or our building comply with building code for the amount of units that we want to get in there? And this is where a lot of people get kind of confused, if you will, or or misunderstanding of what's happening. So, you know, these big announcements that these municipalities are making, like, oh, yeah, we can do five units on one lot. People think it's a free-for-all. That we can just go in and all of a sudden start putting in as you know five units on this little lot. That's not the case. Like there's still other considerations, and building code is one of them. So, in the building code, a house and a building are looked at differently. So, a house is defined up to two dwelling units. Okay, like a typical bungalow conversion. We have a main floor unit, we have a basement unit. That's two units. That's considered a house under the building code. Whereas a building is three or more dwelling units. So once we become a triplex, a fourplex, fiveplex, whatever, are considered a building under the buildings. And the reason this is important is because there's different building code requirements for houses versus buildings. And the big one, the number one thing, which we all need to check when we're looking at our space, is ceiling height. Ceiling height is, you know, the number two thing that we look at after zoning, is ceiling height. And especially, you know, when we're looking at converting existing houses and buildings, oftentimes the basement is one of the number one places that we go to look at adding a unit, right? So in in under the Ontario building code for a house, so up to two units, that basement ceiling height has to be six foot eight or 80 inches high for the main height. And it has to be 77 inches underneath the bulkhead or underneath that beam or bulkhead in that basement. Okay. But once we become a building, so now we're adding a third unit into this building, that basement ceiling height now, that's going to be its own separate unit, has to be 83 inches finished under the building code for a building and 77 inches underneath that bulkhead. So the bulkhead height is the same for both the house and a building, but the main ceiling height is different for a building. It's 83 inches. So this is where sometimes people get caught and they think they're thinking like a house that we can do 80 inches, six foot eight, but then but we can't comply because we're a building guys. we we need 83. So this is where sometimes you know we have to do bench footing or underpinning. We have to lower that basement floor height so that we can comply. So and addressing a ceiling height issue is oftentimes you no, know, obviously a more expensive renovation. It's not impossible. We do them all the time actually because you know lowering your basement floor height to get that ceiling plate is it's valuable square footage right and given the cost of housing cost per square foot you know every square foot that we can gain in a house especially when we're doing multifamily conversion work like honestly every square foot matters you know it's very valuable so we can make a really good return on investment you know on spending money and lowering that floor so yeah those are just some of the you know the Real, from a high-level perspective, the big things that people need to be checking, right? Ceiling height is number two. I guess the third thing would be our means of egress, okay? Because in a house, if you have a shared entrance with another dwelling in a a house, an egress window can satisfy the code requirement for a secondary exit. Whereas in a building, we have a shared entrance with another dwelling unit. We need a separate exit door. That leads down to the grade. So this is where sometimes we need a concrete walkout or we need a, a separate fire escape at the rear of the building so that we can provide that secondary exit door. Obviously, there's another cost factor Associated with that work, there's other zoning implications that would uh, you know apply to the location of these decks and walkouts. So again, it's another thing that has to be taken a close look at: means of egress, ceiling height. These are very important things where we're doing multifamily conversion work. So, but yeah, look, there's opportunity everywhere, right? And we're always analyzing buildings on a on a daily basis here.
0: Do you get more people asking you to go down versus go up, or do you get a combination? Because I can see that for some places, maybe for whatever reason, you can't lower the basement floor, but you can certainly go up. And I remember when I lived in Ottawa, I saw a lot of bungalows having a second story added.
2: Yeah, so so I would say it's probably cheaper to go down than to build up, right? Because when you go down, you're really just, you know, you're doing some bench footing, underpinning, some waterproofing and pouring a new concrete floor slab, right? When we start going up, if you have to increase the roof height, right, in order to meet your minimum height, um, obviously, it's a lot more expensive construction. There's framing, there's roofing, there's siding, each truss, facial work, structural work, you know, you know, the only reason for that is to meet a ceiling height requirement. It's definitely going to be a more expensive way of doing it. Obviously, we do add second stories or additional stories to houses and buildings all the time to add more units, right? But when you're looking at adding a, another story to your existing house or building, obviously, the number one thing we have to check out is, can the existing house carry those additional loads, right? And the most important thing being like the footing size, the foundational wall size, is it solid? What's the main story of the building? What's the existing framing like? Can it accommodate and carry the additional load of a full second story or third story? So definitely has to be looked at by a structural engineer. You know, when everybody, when anybody asks me, hey, can we do a second story on my bungalow? The first thing I say is, well, possibly, but let's get the structural engineer out and do an assessment to see if it's going to be feasible, right? Because I've been in situations before where, yes, the foundation and footing size was okay to carry the load, but the main floor framing wasn't sufficient enough. And we basically had to tear down the main floor down to the foundation and then build up additional stories. So obviously that's going to affect your construction budget big time, right?
0: Yeah, like a lot. <laughs> okay, so we've talked about going up, we've talked about going down, but there's also going back or basically adding an extension to the existing house, right? Now, uh, as, as far as I know, and please correct me if I'm wrong, when you start expanding the footprint of the actual building, now you're really, you're into, well, a lot more issues, but also I believe that you're, doesn't that trigger a more a tax tax implications more than just going up, like creating another story or another unit within uh, the house? So
2: like, obviously, you know, adding gross floor area to the house or building would be knowing the first things that we look at. Obviously, we're looking at the existing building uh, envelope, the existing building itself. To see how many units we can fit within that building. Yes, there obviously there's cases to be made for additions and expanding the footprint of the building, but then now it goes back again to a zoning bylaw consideration where like any sort of addition, you know, has to comply with the zoning bylaw for setbacks and maximum height. or you know, there's other like gross floor area maximums. There's you know, maximum lot coverage. On the property of matter, there's minimum landscape area requirements that also have to be met, even with a new addition. So it's another level of due diligence that has to be done to make sure that we can comply. Can we do it as of right? Or is it going to trigger a minor variance application? And again, remember, whenever we have to go to committee of adjustment, there's a level of risk involved that it may get denied, right? And that now you're opening up your application. And your project to the opinions of all of your neighbors, right? And like, none of us will have to ask our neighbor for their opinion on our project, right? So, but yeah, like, oh, obviously, if, you know, and this is, you know, when people are looking at, you know, what type of house, what type of building should I look at when I'm trying to, you know, execute a multifamily conversion strategy, you know, adding as many as possible, the bigger the building, the bigger the property, the easier it will be to comply with zoning and bylaw, right? So look for those big houses, those big buildings. Look for those big lots, those deep lots. Look for properties that have a nice, generous side yard so that, you know, if you do require parking for your application, you know, we have the ability to make a driveway into the backyard to add additional parking spaces. Look, not every city requires parking for additional dwelling units, additional units, but many municipalities still do. You know, there is this trend out there in municipalities the of re- you know, reducing parking requirements because parking is a big issue. It's it, it is a big hindrance to how many units can be added to a development, right? And obviously, recognize that we're in a housing crisis. Municipalities are looking at their bylaws and looking at, you know, like what are some easy things that we can reduce. Well, parking ratios is going to be a very easy one to address. But but yes, like you know, so. But look, from an investment strategy, like you know, a two-unit conversion, a three, and even a four-unit conversion, sometimes you got to be very careful with how you run your numbers because you know, with the higher purchase prices, higher interest rates, um, sometimes even a two-unit conversion, or oftentimes a two-unit conversion may not even cover itself. Right? You know, you could still be putting money into the property monthly with only two rents coming in, where sometimes we need a minimum of a third unit sometimes even a fourth unit to actually stay cash flow positive, right? And so, you know, so for a lot of the newer investors out there who, you know, are looking at one, two, three, four unit conversions, if you can mix in a lock severance into your deal, you're gonna have a way better chance of really actually recouping your capital and remaining positive.
0: So explain that a little bit. Explain the lock severance a little bit.
1: And check out their website, butlermortgages.com or by email, daniel.patton at butlermortgages.com or michael.zanzini at butlermortgages.com. And let's go to the lightning round.
2: Yeah, so basically trying to find, you know, corner lots, double wide lots, you know, triple wide lots, you know, as much land as possible and see if there's opportunity to add a new lot via a lot severance, right? Because a lot severance it's not as capital intensive as a full on renovation and conversion project. And so, so yeah, like you can spend, you know, 30, 40, 50,000 on a lot severance, but all of a sudden you've created what, 250, 400 grand because you've created a new lot, right? And then on that new lot, you know, you could then build a multifamily converse our project on that, like a purpose-built duplex, purpose-built triplex. So all of a sudden you've now taken what normally you could fit, you know, maybe three or four units on this land parcel. Now you've basically doubled it and you can do six, eight units, maybe 10 units on that lot, depending on how many lots you can squeeze in there. So lot severance can, you know, can be very kind of almost like low hanging fruit. You know, if you can find that nice square or double wide lot, you know, and the house just so happens to be offset to the one side or even if it's a really old house that's centered on a lot. You know, there could be a case be made just to knock the house down and create two new lots and do a, like a small infill development project.
0: And but, in some cases, the value of the lot may be such that you know, I just want to sell it and walk away with a profit, right?
2: Because. Yeah, just... you don't even have to follow through on the build. Some, Sometimes just doing the paperwork, you know, working with the consultants, the land surveyor going to committee of adjustment, getting that consent to sever, just doing that part of the project, bringing up the entitlements on the land, right? Can really add a tremendous value. Uh, And then you turn around and you sell it to a builder or something, you know? Like It's kind of like small scale development work. If if you're an investor and you kind of want to look at getting into development work, like land development work, starting with a lot severance is a little like a stepping stone into the development world you know and learning how to create land parcels and and creating uses for those land parcels it's, it's a tremendous opportunity
0: and it makes sense too it's it, like you said it's low hanging fruit and if it's a quick a quick turnaround or relatively quick i mean it may take a few months but still you're not waiting for construction or anything else and you can take that money and invest it in something else like, who knows right pay down debt <laughs> whatever you want to do like,
2: a lot severance probably would take upwards of a year, you know, okay. you have to go to a committee of adjustment and, you know, obviously serving work has to take place. But then there's the fulfilling of the conditions of the lot severance, which also takes time. Right. You know, depending on some of the conditions, you know, sometimes there, there's easement or right of way agreements to have to be, you know, considered. You know, there's sometimes a spatial separate if there's an existing house on the lot and you know, all of a sudden you've adjusted the lot line. You know, there's a spatial separation consideration with the existing building. Make sure that existing building so it complies with some building code requirements. Obviously, the land has to be serviced, site servicing, grading, drainage. Are you no, know, obviously, two very common conditions that are put on a lot of severance, and that can take time, right, to fulfill those conditions. So usually, it takes upwards of a year to get done. And if like if you can find a parcel that has an existing house on it that you can be renovating during that time. Or you could be renting it out and collecting rent income from that property while you're working on the lot sub-rents. No, it can be like this whole split and sever strategy that I think is what people really need to be looking at this moment in time in the market. Just because sometimes the smaller conversions are harder to do. And getting to the bigger, more complex stuff, like the commercial to residential conversions, like the five, six, eight, ten, twelve unit building conversions, those are much more complex projects. And those aren't necessarily easily completed by a newer investor. So what if that, you
0: have a lot that's because I've seen a lot of these lots, I've seen many lots where the residential unit is situated closer to the road, but it's a really deep lot. I mean, we're like, you know, you look at it as an investor, you're looking at this going, oh, heavens, I could put like three or four houses on that. You know, like that's, how often do you run into that? And what do you say to people who do have that kind of property where, they have this massive space, but it's going back from the road. Like-
2: yeah. So what we call those are flagpole lots, whereas basically, you know, we have the, kind of a smaller side yard beside the existing house, and we have like this driveway that comes in, and then it widens out at the back. Uh, we call that a flagpole lot. Now, some municipalities are supportive of flagpole, you know, lot designs. Others are not. Others don't support that style of of lot severance. So that really becomes a municipal by municipal kind of conversation with planning staff. If that's something that they would possibly support, they are done commonly in certain municipalities. But, but yeah, I would say more often than not, you know, a standard lot severance front to back is what is done. But, you know, lot severances are done of all sorts of shapes and sizes you know and if you've ever had a chance of sitting in committee of adjustment uh, whether it was for your application or just you're just tuning in for fun who's ever out there tuning into committee of adjustments meetings for fun but you can learn a lot about what the city is approving at committee and it's been very so when I've had a chance to kind of listen in on other people's applications I've learned a lot about you know what the city is accepting you know, how small of lots we can actually get created, how skinny of lot frontages are being approved. And kind of having being exposed to some of those applications, it really can help you see opportunity when it's right there in front of you. You know, you may think that, oh, maybe I can only get two lots out of this lot parcel, when in fact, we can maybe get three or four. Because we could apply for minor variants and ask for a reduced lot frontage or lock area. And all of a sudden now we've got four lots. And that's huge value, right? So
0: I have to ask you about the committee of adjustment. I mean, I know that you're not, in, it, you don't go to, you go, don't go, sorry, you do not go to all the municipalities and you focus primarily in the Hamilton area and maybe the Western part of the GTA. However, if a An application for minor variance is denied, and I'm sure it happens sometimes. The whole thing is that it is a minor variance now does can I was under the impression that the province of Ontario is making it really difficult for municipalities to turn down i guess what you would call reasonable requests, even if the neighbors object
2: well so what, one of the amendments that came out with bill 23 is a third party appeal process. And what that means is that, you know, if committee of adjustment, you know, approves of your variance, let's say no other body could appeal it other than the province, right? So like your neighbor or some sort of advocacy group or environmental group, they can't come out and appeal your, the decision of the committee, right? But if committee of adjustment does deny your application and you. You know, and and look, Committee of Adjustment is made up of basically unelected people, committee people, and they're like politicians. They sway with the wind. You know, whichever wind is blowing from the communities and the neighbors and all that kind of stuff, they will decide with, with the neighbors because it's a political thing, right? And, you know, they're just trying to keep everybody happy, right? And oftentimes, you know, we see this happen with, you know, when we get positive planning reports from planning staff who are university educated. In urban planning, in city planning, you know, very smart people, and they give us positive stack reports, but then a committee of adjustment denies it based off of like, you know, could Mr. and Mrs. Smith down the street, you know, we're getting, we're, you know, we're upset about the change in their neighborhood. Like, that's, a, like, and there's no planning justification for it. You know, this is where we appeal it to the OLT, the Ontario Land Tribunal, and, you know, the Ontario Land Tribunal obviously is made up of, you know, smart people, okay? The university educated people in planning and city planning. And yeah, we do see it that really like, you know, 95% of the time, nine out of 10 times, OLT will approve of your decision if there's proper planning justification for it, you know? And so, so that should give people confidence that they, if they have a really good project, and even if they got a denial from leave adjustment, take it to the Ontario land tribunal because more often than not, they will approve it. And it's only a $400 application fee. Yes, it could take an extra six months maybe or a little bit longer to kind of sort it out with the OLT. But you no, know, it can definitely be well worth the effort.
0: Yeah, that was going to be my next question. What's the cost or the fee? I shouldn't say the cost. It's really an investment. It's $400. Well,
2: the the application fee is $400. Obviously, you have to hire consultants. Sometimes people will hire a lawyer to represent them at the OLT. Obviously, there's going to be a cost associated with that consultant, but, but and obviously it depends on the complexity of the application, right? Like it uh, depends if you're, yeah, so just doing a small, like a parking variance, you know, versus, you know, you're building a 30 story tower, you know, obviously the complexity of the application will affect your consulting fees. But, right. But yeah. I have
0: a question going back to, well, some of the beginning stuff we were talking about. And the question crossed my mind about financing, because when you go to make an adjustment to your residence, so you have a mortgage or you've got some, chances are you've got some kind of financing, a mortgage one way or another. Do you find sometimes that the lending institution will object to changes made to the property?
2: That's a great question. great question. I'm not necessarily a mortgage broker. No, I understand that. <laughs> I know when you know when people are doing like like a teardown, you know they're turning their house down, they are obligated to inform the lender that the house has been removed right. or a significant demolition has taken place, but not everybody informs their lender about it, right and they kind of take that risk that you know okay well we're going to knock it down and we're we'll start the new construction and have it back up again, you know, and then do obviously do the refinance later on. But but yeah, like obviously you have to look through your mortgage uh, commitment and determine what the lender's requirements are for notification for that, right? Definitely something, obviously I'm not a trained mortgage broker or a lawyer. Definitely talk to, you, to those guys about it. But, but yeah, like I've done projects and I have not notified my lender that I was doing significant changes to it.
0: All right, Ken, where can people reach you? What's the best way for people to
2: reach you? Yeah, the best way to reach me is obviously online, whether it's Instagram, Ken Beacon Dam. I'm the only Ken Beacon Dam on planet Earth. You Google my name, there's no others who come up. So Ken Beacon Dam, Instagram, Facebook, Ken Beacon Dam. You can check me out on my website, LegalSecondSweets.com, and that's our second suite business. Yeah, and just uh, connect with me on there. On my website, if you would like a consultation or would like to set up a call, you can book a free consultation, free property assessment as well through my website, LegalSecondSuits.com. So definitely, I would love to hear from you guys. Reach out. I love talking with new investors. I love looking at properties, seeing how we can add more units and yeah, creating more housing. All right. That's
0: it, folks. Then you've heard it here. Reach out to Ken. All kinds of ways to reach him. And thank you, Ken, so very much. It was fun. It was lively. I learned a lot. And, uh, hey, we'll have you back soon, I think, because you've got a lot, I think you've got a lot more stories under your belt there.
2: Yes. Thanks for having me, guys. Thanks again.
1: Wow. Was that ever awesome. And, you know, if you thought it was awesome just the way that we did, hang tight, because part two is coming up as well. There was so much information that Ken had to share. Laurel, what did you think?
0: Yeah, you know, I could talk to Ken all day. He's so enthusiastic and so passionate about what he's doing. He obviously loves it and he's learning all the time, so hey, it was great. But before we go, I just want to remind you that there's lots of free content on therightclub.com. So go on there and find all that great content information for you. It's free to join us and if you have a chance, give us some pod love. Rate us on whatever platform you're listening on that will help us reach even more investors. So until next time, customize your life.